Well, amen. Thank you for that special for all of those. And uh, I was enjoying the story of Easter being played out through those songs. I hope you were as well. I hope you noticed that. All the way right up to the empty tomb, gone. The stone is rolled back. And so we appreciate those getting ready. And that we appreciate our resurrection choir. That was good. Amen. Take your Bibles if you would. Let's open the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Inside your bulletin you have a gospel track which gives you the opportunity to be like the angels who told the story of Jesus. They said, He is not here. He is risen, as He said. And then they turned and said, Behold the place where the Lord lay. Think about that. When we share the gospel with others, we have the opportunity to be a, a similar messenger, giving folks the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, helping them to have an opportunity to understand what Jesus did for them and how they might be saved. And so I hope you'll read that this week and pass it on to someone else and uh, share that with others. 1 Corinthians 15, if you found your place, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll have prayer and then begin reading in verse 1. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day and the occasion that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Lord, we know it is through your resurrection that we have power and victory and salvation in Jesus, and we thank you for all these things. We ask now that you'd bless the reading of your word, Lord, and that you'd speak to our hearts, Lord, each one. Take the message and make it personal, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might know what you'd have us to do. And Lord, we'll thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture because this gives us the biblical definition of the gospel. If you ever wondered what is the gospel, well, here it is. It is plainly spelled out in verses 3 and 4, defining that it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is the gospel. And when we serve others with that message then we are giving the gospel to them. But if you serve without that message, then please understand that you are not giving the gospel at that point. Don't confuse the story. It's all about Jesus and his resurrection. This morning we're going to find out why as I preach on this topic this morning, the resurrection. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Paul said, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. There's a lot of importance in these words. It seems that they are carefully chosen. If you'll notice in verse 3, he said, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. 
It's very important, ladies and gentlemen, that we be sure, that we be accurate, that we take the gospel, the same gospel that was handed to us, and that we pass it on to the next generation. Let's not change it. Let's not distort it. Don't water it down, but deliver it just the way you received it. I think Paul is kind of giving us a hidden message here. He's implying to us that there is a stewardship. There is a responsibility to take care of the message, to communicate it well, clearly, and successfully. Paul said, I delivered it unto you the same way I received it. I wonder, have we been so clear? Have we been so faithful to the Lord that we've communicated the message of the gospel just as clear, just as sure, in every detail that we received it, we gave it. Paul was being very careful to do that. And he said, I gave it to you the way I received it. How that he said, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. All of that wording is important. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul said the gospel begins with the fact that Christ died for our sins. Hey, I want you to know, it was not the Roman government that held Christ to that old rugged cross. It was not the Roman centurions that put him there. It was not the jeering Jewish crowd. It was not the religious Pharisees who cried, Away with this man! Crucify him! No, 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 dear friend. That's not what put Jesus on the cross. And contrary to what you might think, It wasn't even the nails that they placed in his hands and his feet. That's not what held him there. Jesus said, I lay my life down. No man takes it from me. He said, I lay my life down and I will take it up again. And he did. Why did he do it? Paul so accurately, so clearly tells us, that Christ died for our sins. Hey, let's pause this service for a moment. And may I ask you today, so that you can appreciate the value of what this day represents, can I ask you for a moment, would you consider in your mind's eye the worst thing you've ever done? And as that awful image comes to your mind, the things that you would not want to share with anyone. That is what put Jesus on the cross. That is what held him there. Not the nails. Jesus died for our sins. Not his sins, our sins. The Bible plainly tells us it is written that there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none of us in this, here this morning that's righteous. None of us are, are really, like we like to say it, we're not really good. The Bible goes further to say not only are we not good, we're not righteous. No, not one of us. But the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And a moment ago, I had you remember and imagine the worst thing you've ever done. We don't even have to think about the worst thing. Any wrong thing you've ever done is in the category of sin. And the wrongdoing that we do, the sinfulness 
that we have. That is what Jesus died to save us from. Because the Bible says that sin brings with it the penalty of death. Oh, oh not, just, not just physical death. We know that all too well. We see it all too often. But death came into the world by sin. The Bible says, wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And so we see the entrance, the, the reason for the need for Christ to come, to die on a cross and be buried, to rise again. Why? Because of our sinfulness. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not only is it death physically, the word death in the Bible, if you study it out, really means a separation. And so when there's physical death, there's a separation of the body and soul. But the Bible says there's a second death. If you die in your sins, you die twice. Once when your body is separated from your soul, and then a second time when your soul is separated from God for all eternity because you cannot enter into heaven as a sinner. No sin can enter into heaven. You know, I don't have a problem understanding that. Because, listen, I grew up back in the days when, when mom would send us out. Hey, you boys, go outside and play. And while we were out having fun and playing in the yard and down the street with our friends and all of that, mom was back at the house slaving and cleaning and mopping the floor and all of that. And, and you really didn't know all that was going on until you came back home to get a drink. And you come in the house and not realizing that you'd walk through the mud. And you come tracking dirt in the house. Hey, I'm, you want to see... You want to see a wild tornado? You walk through mom's floor with mud on your feet. Oh, listen. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're getting ushered out the door in a hurry. Not letting it hit you on the way out. <laughs> you stay outside, right? You can't come in here. Why? You're dirty. Have you ever had that happen to you? You know there ain't no dirt in the loud in mom's kitchen, not when she's cleaning, right? You don't come in the house tracking mud. You know, that's how God feels about heaven. You're not gonna, he's not going to let you waltz in there and bring in your sin in heaven. No. So what do you have to do? You have to get rid of that. Some people think they can get rid of their sin by doing good things. But the problem is good things don't erase bad things. Hey, I, I might be wearing a clean shirt, but that doesn't take the mud off my feet. There has to be a cleansing. There has to be a purge. There has to be something to remove my sin. What is that? Oh, the songwriter said it so well. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. Right? No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Listen, the reason Jesus died on the cross is so that He could pay the price and take away your sin. Why? Because nothing else will. Because if He had not made the only sacrifice, the only offering that God in heaven would accept to pay for sin, if He had not done that, there would be no hope for us all. Because nothing else 
washes away sin. Hey, I'm here to tell you this morning. Being baptized in the baptistry will not wash away your sin. The Bible says that. Being a member of a church like this, will, that will not wash away your sin. And I don't care who he is or where he lives, there's no preacher like me that can wash away your sin. I'm just a man, just like you. I have my own. You've heard the saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's because all of us have the opportunity and the responsibility to meet the Lord there. To allow Him to do what only He can do. To forgive us for our sins. If God is holy, if God is righteous, if God is just, then your sin has to be paid for. He cannot just overlook it. He cannot just act as if it didn't happen. God cannot pardon sin on a whim. There has to be a basis. A legal payment has to be made in order for sin to be forgiven. The reason God can forgive our sins is because Jesus made the payment on the cross. And when you receive the payment that he made, then that can be applied to your account and your sins can be forgiven. Because there's a basis for that forgiveness. There's a payment that will be made, not by you, oh, not by you, but by Jesus. Salvation is free to the recipient, but it costs Jesus dearly. He paid an awful price so that you and I might freely receive what he gave us. This is what Paul's writing about when he says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, this, this message that's so important down through the ages that must be preserved, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said how that Christ died for our sins. That's why Jesus died. He died for our sin. Hey, let me ask you this morning, are you a sinner? Do you know that you've sinned? You know, sin is doing wrong. And when we do wrong and we know we're doing wrong, that's what people refer to as the age of accountability. Now, the age, the number of your years may vary. Some people understand this earlier than others. And I think for people who grow up in church uh, hearing messages like this, their awareness is heightened, and at a younger age even, they're able to understand what sin is. But at some point in all of our lives, we came to that day, that place, that time, when we understood the difference between right and wrong, and we did wrong anyway. We gave in to that carnal, fleshly desire of us, that sin nature that was inherited from Adam, and not only were we sinners by nature, but we became, that day, we became sinners by choice. Which means it's not all Adam and Eve's fault. Because we made the same mistake they did. By the way, if you, if you think, if you think your sin is not really that bad, look at Adam's sin. Adam just ate a piece of fruit. 
Well, we look at that and think, well, that's not, that's not so bad. You know, it's, it's not the deed that's so bad, it's the transgression. The problem is Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They directly disobeyed God. And that's what made it sin. Because God said, do not eat of this tree. And they did it anyway. And that's what sin is. Sin is when you do what you're not supposed to do. But sin is also when you don't do what you are supposed to do. Sins of commission, the things we commit, and sins of omission, the things we omit, the things we skip, the things we don't do, that we should. We've all been guilty of those a thousand times over. We deserve the death and and punishment that comes with that. But thanks be to God that Jesus became our sacrifice. He died on an old rugged cross. The Bible says for our sins. Not for His sins. He didn't have any. The Bible says He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. So guess what? We, we're able to trade because of what Jesus did on the cross and because he came out of that tomb. We are able to trade with God. We, we get to give him our sinfulness and he gives us his righteousness. Oh, what a deal. What a trade. Who wouldn't want to receive that? The forgiveness of sins. The Bible says he died for our sins, but then it also says according to the scriptures. You may not know where all those verses are, but the Bible said ahead of time that he would come. The Bible told us in advance why he would come, that he would come and that he would come to die for sin, to take away the sin of the world. That's why when John the Baptist saw him coming in his day, he pointed and said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Do you know this morning it matters whether or not you believe you're a sinner, that you understand you've you've sinned against a holy God, that you now are an offender, that if you die in your sins, you will not go to heaven. That's why, that's why you need a Savior. That's why you need Jesus. That's why He came to die on an old rugged cross. All of us need Jesus. Everybody needs a Savior. That's why the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It was for the whole world. It was for everyone. It was for you. It was for me. Because we needed that. We couldn't pay the price of sin on our own. And God didn't leave us without hope. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price in our place to die for us. He was buried and then He rose again. According to the Scriptures, it says. According to the scriptures. You know, you're holding in your lap something beautiful today. This is not just a historical record, although it is that. This book is not just scientific evidence, although it is that. This book is the revelation of God. It is truth for today to tell us how we might be saved, that we might have hope beyond this life, that we might have forgiveness of all of the gloom and the guilt and the grievance that sin brings into our lives. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous, won that victory over all of that for us. And it's part of the gospel story. And Paul is now passing it down just as it was given to him. In verse 4, he says that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures that we might know that God keeps His Word according to the Scriptures. Oh, listen. God kept His Word. He came the first time. God kept His Word. He rose from the dead. And God will keep His Word. He will come the next time. As we consider this chapter on the resurrection... I just want to give you some simple thoughts this morning. First of all, I want you to see the proof of the resurrection. The proof of the resurrection. Look with me, if you would. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we read verses up to verse 4, but let's read a little further. The Bible says in verse 5, And that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. This is important. Remember, I said this was evidence. It is. What is the proof of the resurrection? How do we know this really happened? I wasn't there. Was you? Were you there? We look at the scriptures today and we have evidence that the resurrection actually occurred. First of all, we have a resurrected body. We have a living Jesus. After that, he died on the cross. Now, I know there are skeptics. There have always been skeptics. And down through the years, they've given different accusations and explanations for what they think happened without considering the evidence. They've said ridiculous things like, well, for example, like, um, well, Jesus, he didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted. And, And when they placed him in the tomb, the cool air revived him and he came back to life. And I think, boy, you have to be pretty dumb to think that. Have you ever seen a Roman crucifixion? Have you read, obviously they haven't, have you read the biblical account of the crucifixion of Christ? Did you see how they beat him? How they, how they scarred him? Do you understand what the crown of thorns did? Do you know the agony of hanging on the cross until you suffocate? Now we know it was a high Sabbath. It was an early holiday, which means it was earlier in the week than what everybody says, all right? And we know that because of that, they were kind of rushing to get them all dead and off the cross because they wanted to celebrate their holiday, the Jews, that is, without the, the being tainted uh, by having to deal with dead bodies. And so they rushed this thing, and they were, remember, they broke the legs of the other two, but when they came to Jesus, they said, he's already dead. Now, wait a minute, who, who pronounced him dead? It was the coroner of their day. The experienced executioners, the Roman soldiers whose job it was to execute men on the cross, uh, I think they knew a dead body when they saw one. They came to Jesus and said, this guy, he's already dead. It was so convincing that they they didn't follow their command and they didn't break his legs like they did the other two because they knew there was no need to do that, by the way. They fulfilled one of the prophecies about Jesus to help us remember and identify that he was the Messiah, the promised Savior, just as God said, according to the scriptures. The Bible says not one of his bones would be broken. 
And so that that prophecy could be fulfilled, he was already dead. They did not break his bones, but they did something else instead. So if he wasn't dead, this would have done it. They jabbed him with a spear up in his side, piercing his chest cavity and his heart. And when they did that, blood and water came out. It was evidence of his death. It was another, another piece of evidence to the executioners. This man is truly dead. And if he wasn't dead, he would have been after that. When they laid him in the tomb, there was no question. There was no question on the part of the executioners that Jesus was fully, legitimately, scientifically, he was dead. If you believe that, you have to really want to believe anything but the truth. Other people, other skeptics, of course, said, well, what really happened? Yes, he really died on the cross. We can't dispute that. But what he really did was, well, the disciples came away and they stole the body out of the tomb. That's what really happened. He didn't really rise from the dead. The disciples wanted us to think he did. And so uh, they just came and stole the body. Can you imagine that? The Bible, again, they haven't read the Bible, obviously, because the Bible says that there was a troop of Roman soldiers surrounding the tomb. They were there to guard against that very thing. <laughs> Can you imagine some unarmed fishermen going against armed, trained Roman soldiers? And how are they going to defeat this troop of soldiers in order to steal the body? Oh, I know. They're going to sneak in while the guards are asleep. And they're going to roll that heavy stone out of the way and pull the body without making a grunt. And they're going to do it with such stealth that no one's going to hear a thing. And they're going to get the body out of there without waking up not even one soldier. That's how they did it. If you believe that, as someone has said before, I got some, I got some land in, in the Florida Everglades I want to sell you. <laughs> really? Come on, people. Hey, did you know if a Roman soldier slept on his post, did you know that was a death sentence for them? They would have paid for that with their life. The Bible tells us, it is recorded historically, that they were paid off to say they were asleep. And the, Jew, the Jewish leaders that paid them to tell a lie said, if your supervisors have a problem with that, we'll take care of them. I don't know what kind of blackmail was going on there or how much money it took to secure that. You don't believe there's corruption in government, do you? <laughs> well, it sure explains away that theory. Jesus fainted. Oh, that sounds so silly. The disciples stole his body. How ridiculous does that sound? Anybody who understands military procedures and tactics knows that unarmed fishermen could never have stolen the body away from Jesus. Not without somebody losing an arm or a head or a leg or something. It didn't happen. All of that's a lie. It's been made up by the skeptics because... 
regardless of what you might think, there are some people alive on planet Earth today that would rather believe anything but this. It couldn't be. The Bible can't be true. Hey, can I tell you something? It takes probably more faith to believe that stuff than it does just to believe the truth of what God said. This is what happened. By the way, there have been many who have tried to historically disprove the Bible account of the resurrection. Most of those people end up becoming converted and becoming a Christian. Why? Because the evidence is so strong. It's never been disproven. The proof of the resurrection. What's the proof? A resurrected body. I want you to turn with me to Luke 24, if you would. And and look at what the Bible says about the resurrected body of Jesus. In Luke 24, this is the... This is the story that we refer to as the Emmaus Road encounter. And you know, that's where two of his disciples were walking along the road and they were reflecting on the events of how Jesus died and he was crucified. And while they were doing that, a stranger met them along the way and began to discuss this with them. And when they got where they were going, uh, they sat down for bread together. And, and they realized when they broke the bread, that was Jesus. And they got all excited and they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he spake to us? Well, Jesus had been there and talking to them, and they were so excited, they got up and ran back where they came from. And they wanted to tell this story. And so we're going to see, we're going to pick up right there and see what they were, were telling. Look at verse 33. The Bible says there, And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that he had been a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. He said, touch me. I'm here. This was a resurrected body. It was Jesus alive after his crucifixion. He appeared and they saw him. Wow. You you can't dispute that. The proof of the resurrection came in a resurrected body. It also came in the form of an empty tomb. The grave where Jesus was laid is empty. It's still empty today. I have some friends that just came back from a trip to the Holy Land, and they were there. And this morning, uh, my friend's wife posted a picture of the empty tomb. And she said, he is risen. The tomb is empty. She said, I saw it. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 20. John chapter 19 records the crucifixion of Christ. And then we see in chapter 20, his resurrection. The Bible says in verse 1, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Now, by the way, the stone wasn't removed so Jesus could get out. The stone was removed so that they could get in, so they could see that he was not there, that he had been resurrected. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. 
Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came into the sepulcher. So they ran uh, both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first unto the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying. Yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also other the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. And the disciples went away again unto their home. We're finding here the empty tomb and the disciples confirming that Jesus was now alive after his death, after his burial. The proof of the resurrection is a resurrected body, an empty tomb. And by the way, they were in the right place. They knew where to go. They knew where his body had been laid. There was no mistaken identity of the tomb here. What other proof do we have? Well, go back to our text, 1 Corinthians 15. Notice what Paul says here in verse 5. We have a resurrected body, an empty tomb, and we have eyewitness accounts. Check this out. Verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Why is this important? Well, remember those skeptics we were talking about? The ones who would rather believe anything but the truth? You know what they said about the resurrection? They said, well, you know, it's possible that those people who saw him after his resurrection, could have been hallucinating. You know, they just wanted to see him so bad. And I'm saying, you have 500 people hallucinating the same thing all together at one time? Well, I ain't never seen that. What a miracle. That's ridiculous. Can't happen. Never happened. 500 people don't hallucinate the same event. It's never happened in the history of man, and it never will. It's not possible. They weren't hallucinating. These are eyewitness accounts. And you know, in our judicial system, we base evidence and truth on eyewitness accounts. You know, the Bible tells us as believers that we should not believe an accusation against a brother unless there are two or three witnesses. Now, I know, I know, I know. We're sinful humans, and we don't follow that all the time. And sometimes we believe stuff just because we hear it, even though it may not have an ounce of truth to it. But we shouldn't. We should believe eyewitness accounts. We should, we should believe truth. And that truth that is backed up and confirmed, right? That's been validated. We should take the time to validate what we believe. So what happened here? Paul is saying Paul has validated his faith. He has validated this story that's been given to him. The gospel, the resurrection of Jesus. He said, look, there are eyewitness accounts. Cephas, the twelve, these 500 brethren that saw him at once. And notice what he said about them. He said, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. Some of these have passed on already. He said, but most of them are still alive. Go ask them yourself. They've seen Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Wow, what a truth. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 7, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. 
And in verse 8, last of all, he was seen of me also, who am one born out of due time. Paul said there's proof of the resurrection. There are eyewitness accounts, those who saw Jesus personally. Then I want you to see in this text, Paul gives us the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. First of all, he gives us that, the, the fact that the resurrection gives power over death. Look at verse 20. So the Bible says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. He has power over death. He has, he has gotten up from the grave. He's the firstfruits. In verses 24 and 25, Paul tells us that he has the power to rule and to reign. Notice what it says. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, and he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Oh, listen, we know Jesus will come back. That second coming is when he comes back to set up his kingdom. That second coming is when he puts down all other rule and authority. He will set up his kingdom. He will rule, the Bible says, for a thousand years. Jesus will reign. He obtained that, that, that power through the resurrection. Notice, he also has the power to subdue and submit. You may not have thought about this before, but let me just throw it out quickly. I don't have time to deal with it, but you know, you have to be in control to submit. Anarchy doesn't submit. You have to be in control in order to submit yourself. The word submit means to place yourself under. And we're talking about authority usually when we use that word. Place yourself under the authority of another. Watch what happened. Jesus has the power to do that. By the way, when we're saved in Jesus, we gain the power to subdue ourselves and submit to God. It's great power because that is what gives us the freedom, the victory over sin, the power to say no to the world, the flesh and the devil, the power to say no to all that is wrong and will hurt us. We have the power to say yes to righteousness and all those things that are good for us. Notice verse 27. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things are subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be glorified, that God may be all in all. So what did Jesus do? Let me just say it in a nutshell. Jesus bought back redemption. He bought back the creation to himself. He offers forgiveness of sins. Those who receive Christ as their Savior become followers of His. We're born into the family of God. Jesus is going to take all of that. He's going to overcome the kingdoms of the world. And then He's going to put all of that. He's going to give it all to the Father. If you go back to Genesis 1, you find that that's where we started. With God and His creation. And, and we got away from that in the garden when man sinned against God. All right? There, there, is a, there is a practice of authority there where the sinful creation now came under the authority of the prince and power of the air, the devil. That's what gives him a legal right to operate in this world today. We did that. So when bad things happen and wrong is being done in the world, instead of saying, where is God? It's the wrong, you're asking the wrong question. 
You should be asking, why did we do this? So God subjected his son to the same crime, the same violence, the same sinfulness, the same death. So where's God when bad things happen to you? The same place he was when bad things were happening to his son. When he was being mocked and beaten and spat upon. When he was being hung on an old rugged cross. When he was dying for your sins. When he was being placed in a borrowed tomb. He's in the same place. And one day God will make it all right. And here's how we know. Because Jesus completed the plan of redemption. He bought back humanity and creation and will one day submit it to the Father. Oh, listen, it's powerful. The power to subdue and submit. And then I want you to see in closing the purpose of the resurrection. It was that process of change. The process of victory. Hey, the whole purpose of the resurrection was to bring victory. That's why Paul said in verse 55, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? You know what Jesus did? He did what some of us boys did when we were kids. Catch that bee and pull that stinger out. Boom. And, and what, what do boys do after that? Nah, nah, I ain't scared of you no more. Right? The stinger's gone. Jesus took the sting out of death. He took the victory away from the grave. Verse 56 says, The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. Jesus overcame all that for us. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. He bought the victory. In verse 42, it tells us that he gives us victory from corruption to incorruption. That's where we're going. Verse 43 says, from dishonor to glory. You know, I had you picture Sinful things a moment ago that you've done. Listen, Jesus is going to take all that away and, he, and He's going to surround you. He's going to place you in glory, robed in righteousness. And we're going to get to fellowship with the saints and rejoice with the Father. Not as a sinner, but as a saint. That's what Jesus gave us. In verse 44, we're going to go from natural to spiritual. Isn't it interesting? That Darwinism talks about natural selection, all these natural things. But the Bible talks about things spiritual. The Bible separates the two and tells us how much better the spiritual is, how, how earthly, how fleshly, how sinful the natural is. You know, God's not interested in salvaging the natural because it's all condemned by sin. God is going to transform it. We're going from natural to spiritual in verse 44. And then in verse 49, we're going from earthly to heavenly. Thanks to Jesus. Hey, can I tell you something? Because of God's plan of redemption, way back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were sinning, God already knew that was going to happen, and He had a plan. Not plan B! It was plan A. From the very beginning, God knew this was going to happen, and He knew what He was going to do about it. He had a plan that He would send His Son, die on an old rugged cross to pay for our sins, offer forgiveness to us as the plan of redemption. And when we came to Him and accepted that, the payment would be made to our account through that purchase, God would buy us back to himself and he would redeem us and turn us into trophies of his grace. Oh, what a powerful plan. Can I tell you, our end will be better than our beginning. 
Some people read the Bible and they think, oh no, how much better it would have been if we could have stopped Adam and Eve from bringing sin into the world. It would have been so much better if we had stayed innocent. But no, dear friends, I'm telling you something. The Bible message is that our end will be better than our beginning. The state of our redemption in glory will be far greater than the state of our innocence that we were created in. Oh, listen, I'm I'm not downplaying the damage of sin. But I'm telling you that God gives us the victory. So much so that we're going to be in far greater shape on the other side in our eternal state through redemption. We're going to be better in that state than we ever would have been before sin even came into the picture. The state of redemption is better than the state of innocence. Hands down, any day. Hey, that is a testament to the greatness of our God. Salvation wasn't plan B, it was plan A. God knew all things, and He knew that sin would enter the world. He knew that Adam and Eve would believe the devil's lie. But He had a plan. And He knew in the end we would all be far better than we were in the beginning. You know, that's what makes God God. He's on top of it all. He's still in control no matter what happens. Even when things go south, even when it looks like everything's chaos and it looks like nothing is going to work, nothing good is going to come of this. Oh, yes. Romans 8.28 is still in the book. All things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. God has given us the victory in Jesus Christ. And that is what the resurrection means to us. It means victory. How about it today? Are you victorious? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Have you been forgiven of all your sins? If not, you can be. It can happen today. Because the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus loves us, and He wants to save us from sin more than we want to be saved. You know, sin has a way of just kind of taking hold of us. It's deceptive because sometimes we think sin is good. It's really not good. There's nothing good in it for you. In the end, sin will take you to hell. Somebody said one time, sin will cost you more than you want to pay. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. Right? It does. Sin's never worth the ride that it takes you on. But Jesus came to deliver us from that. And friend, if you don't have that assurance that heaven is your home, that Jesus is your Savior, you can leave with it today. We'd be glad to take the Bible and show you how. Jesus can give you the victory. That's what the resurrection is all about. There's hope. There's hope beyond this life and all the trouble we have in it. There's hope beyond the grave. Some people think it all ends right there. That's only because you can't see the other side. But through the lens of Scripture, just like these 
These lenses right here sure help me see certain things. You know what? These lenses right here, the Old and New Testament, God's message to us becomes a lens allowing us to see beyond the grave. God reveals to us what we need to know about how to make it to the other side. That's why it was so important that Paul said, I have received and I'm delivering the gospel message to you just the way I received it. How good of it was for him to do that. Anybody that shares the gospel with you cares enough about you to do it and to share it clearly. They're trying to help you. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross, when he rose from the grave. He did it to help. He did it to bring victory that we could not obtain on our own. Happy Resurrection Day. To us, it means victory in Jesus. And we gladly celebrate it today with you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, how we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the message of resurrection and victory. We thank you, Lord, for dying on an old rugged cross to pay for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the empty tomb, revealing the resurrection and the power that you have over death and over the grave, over sin and the devil, over death and hell. And we thank you that you give that victory to us, that we might be with you one day in heaven.